21. Our language. These speeches are almost unrivaled. Second. Dilbert speaks in prose. He is essentially a poet, whose imagery, like that of Milton's prose works, is more remarkable than that of many of our writers of verse. He speaks in figures, images, symbols, and the musical cadence of his sentences reflects the influence of his wide reading of poetry, not only in figurative expression, but much more in spirit. He belongs with the poets of the revival. At times his language is pseudo-classic reflecting the influence of Johnson and his school, but his thought is always romantic, he is governed by ideal rather than by practical interests, and a profound sympathy for humanity is perhaps his most marked characteristic. Third, the supreme object of these orations, so different from the majority of political speeches, is not to win approval or to gain votes, but to establish the truth. Like our own Lincoln, Burke had a superb faith in the compelling power of the truth. A faith in men also, who, if the history of our race means anything, will not willingly follow a lie. The methods of these two great leaders are strikingly similar in this respect, that each repeats his idea in many ways, presenting the truth from different viewpoints, so that it will appeal to men of widely different experiences. Otherwise the two men are in marked contrast. The uneducated Lincoln speaks in simple, homely words, draws his illustrations from the farm and often adds a humorous story, so apt and telling, that his hearers can never forget the point of his argument. The scholarly Burke speaks in ornate, majestic periods, and searches all history and all literature for his illustrations, his wealth of imagery and illusions, together with his rare combination of poetic and logical reasoning, make these orations remarkable, entirely apart from their subject and purpose. Fourth and perhaps most significant of the man and his work, Burke takes his stand squarely upon the principle of justice. He has studied history, and he finds that to establish justice, between man and man and between nation and nation, has been the supreme object of every reformer since the world began. No small or merely temporary success attracts him, only the truth will suffice for an argument, and nothing less than justice will ever settle a question permanently. Such is his platform, simple as the golden rule, unshakable as the moral law. Hence, though he apparently fails of his immediate desire in each of these three orations, the principle for which he contends cannot fail. As a modern writer says of Lincoln, the full, rich flood of his life through the nation's pulse is yet beating, and his words are still potent in shaping the course of English politics in the way of justice. Edward Gibbon 1737-1794 To understand Burke or Johnson, one must read a multitude of books and be wary in his judgment but with Gibbon the task is comparatively easy, for one has only to consider two books, his memoirs and the first volume of his history, to understand the author. In his memoirs we have an interesting reflection of Gibbon's own personality, a man who looks with satisfaction on the material side of things, who seeks always the easiest path for himself, and avoids life's difficulties and responsibilities. I sighed as a lover, but I obeyed as a son, he says, when, to save his inheritance, he gave up the woman he loved and came home to enjoy the paternal loaves and fishes, that is suggestive of the man's whole life. His history, on the other hand, is a remarkable work. It was the first in our language to be written on scientific principles, and with a solid basis of fact, and the style is the very climax of that classicism which had ruled England for an entire century. 
its combination of historical fact and literary style makes the decline and fall of the Roman Empire the one thing of Gibbon's life that is, worthy to be remembered. Gibbon's history, for many years Gibbon had meditated, like Milton, upon an immortal work, and had tried several historical subjects, only to give them up idly. In his journal he tells us how his vague resolutions were brought to a focus, it was at Rome, on the 15th of October, 1764, as I sat musing amidst the ruins of the capital, while the barefooted friars were singing vespers in the temple of Jupiter, that the idea of writing the decline and fall of the city first started to my mind, twelve years later, in 1776, Gibbon published the first volume of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, and the enormous success of the work encouraged him to go on with the other five volumes, which were published at intervals during the next twelve years. The history begins with the reign of Trajan, in AD 98, and builds a straight Roman road through the confused histories of 14 centuries, ending with the fall of the Byzantine Empire in 1453. The scope of the history is enormous. It includes not only the decline of the Roman Empire, but such movements as the descent of the northern barbarians, the spread of Christianity, the reorganization of the European nations, the establishment of the Great Eastern Empire, the rise of Mohammedanism, and the splendor of the Crusades. On the one hand it lacks philosophical insight, being satisfied with facts without comprehending the causes, and, as given seems lacking in ability to understand spiritual and religious movements, it is utterly inadequate in its treatment of the tremendous influence of Christianity. On the other hand, Gibbon's scholarship leaves little to criticize, he read enormously, sifted his facts out of multitudes of books and records, and then marshaled them in the imposing array with which we have grown familiar. Moreover, he is singularly just and discriminating in the use of all documents and authorities at his command, hence he has given us the first history in English that has borne successfully the test of modern research and scholarship. The style of the work is as imposing as his great subject, indeed. With almost any other subject the sonorous roll of his majestic sentences would be out of place, while it deserves all the adjectives that have been applied to it by enthusiastic admirers. Finished, elegant, splendid, rounded, massive, sonorous, copious, elaborate, ornate, exhaustive, it must be confessed, though one whispers the confession, that the style sometimes obscures our interest in the narrative, as he sifted his facts from a multitude of sources so he often hides them again in endless periods, and one must often sift them out again in order to be quite sure of even the simple facts. Another drawback is that Gibbon is hopelessly worldly in his point of view, he loves pageants and crowds rather than individuals, and he is lacking in enthusiasm and in spiritual insight. The result is so frankly material at times that one wonders if he is not reading of forces or machines, rather than of human beings. A little reading of his history here and there is an excellent thing, leaving one impressed with the elegant classical style and the scholarship, but a continued reading is very apt to leave us longing for simplicity, for naturalness, and, above all, for the glow of enthusiasm which makes the dead heroes live once more in the written pages. This judgment, however, must not obscure the fact that the book had a remarkably large sale, and that this, of itself, is an evidence that multitudes of readers found it not only erudite, but readable and interesting. I, I, the revival of romantic poetry the old order Chagath, yielding place to new, and God fulfills himself in many ways, lest one good custom should corrupt the world. Tennyson's The Passing of Arthur, 
the meaning of Romanticism, while Dryden, Pope, and Johnson were successively the dictators of English letters, and while, under their leadership, the heroic couplet became the fashion of poetry, and literature in general became satiric or critical in spirit, and formal in expression, a new romantic movement quietly made its appearance. Thompson's The Seasons 1730 was the first noteworthy poem of the Romantic Revival, and the poems and the poets increased steadily in number and importance till, in the age of Wordsworth and Scott, the spirit of Romanticism dominated our literature more completely than Classicism had ever done. This Romantic movement which Victor Hugo calls, Liberalism in Literature, is simply the expression of life as seen by imagination, rather than by prosaic, common sense which was the central doctrine of English philosophy in the 18th century. It has six prominent characteristics which distinguish it from the so-called classic literature which we have just studied. 1. The Romantic movement was marked, and is always marked, by a strong reaction and protest against the bondage of rule and custom, which, in science and theology, as well as in literature, generally tend to fetter the free human spirit. 2. Romanticism returned to nature and to plain humanity for its material, and so is in marked contrast to classicism, which had confined itself largely to the clubs and drawing rooms, and to the social and political life of London. Thompson's Seasons, whatever its defects, was a revelation of the natural wealth and beauty which, for nearly a century, had been hardly noticed by the great writers of England. 3. It brought again the dream of a golden age in which the stern realities of life were forgotten and the ideals of youth were established as the only permanent realities. For the dreamer lives forever, but the twaller dies in a day. Expresses, perhaps, only the wild fancy of a modern poet, but, when we think of it seriously, the dreams and ideals of a people are cherished possessions long after their stone monuments have crumbled away and their battles are forgotten. The Romantic movement emphasized these eternal ideals of youth, and appealed to the human heart as the classic elegance of Dryden and Pope could never do. For, Romanticism was marked by intense human sympathy, and by a consequent understanding of the human heart, not to intellect or to science does the heart unlock its treasures, but rather to the touch of a sympathetic nature, and things that are hidden from the wise and prudent are revealed unto children. Pope had no appreciable humanity, Swift's work is a frightful satire, Addison delighted polite society, but had no message for plain people, while even Johnson, with all his kindness, had no feeling for men in the mass, but supported Sir Robert Walpole in his policy of letting evils alone until forced by a revolution to take notice of humanity's appeal. With the Romantic Revival all this was changed, while Howard was working heroically for prison reform, and Wilberforce for the liberation of the slaves. Gray wrote his short and simple annals of the poor, and Goldsmith his deserted village, and Cooper sang, My ear is pained, my soul is sick with every day's report of wrong and outrage with which earth is filled, there is no flesh in man's obdurate heart, it does not feel for man, this sympathy for the poor, and this cry against oppression, grew stronger and stronger till it culminated in Bobby Burns, who, more than any other writer in any language, is the poet of the unleppered human heart. 5. The Romantic movement was the expression of individual genius rather than of established rules. In consequence, the literature of the revival is as varied as the characters and moods of the different writers. When we read Pope, for instance, we have a general impression of sameness, as if all his polished poems were made in the same machine, 
but in the work of the best romanticists there is endless variety. To read them is like passing through a new village, meeting a score of different human types, and finding in each one something to love or to remember. Nature and the heart of man are as new as if we had never studied them. Hence, in reading the romanticists, who went to these sources for their material, we are seldom wearied but often surprised, and the surprise is like that of the sunrise, or the sea, which always offers some new beauty and stirs us deeply, as if we had never seen it before. 6. The Romantic Movement, while it followed its own genius, was not altogether unguided, strictly speaking. There is no new movement either in history or in literature, each grows out of some good thing which has preceded it, and looks back with reverence to past masters. Spencer, Shakespeare, and Milton were the inspiration of the Romantic revival, and we can hardly read a poem of the early Romanticists without finding a suggestion of the influence of one of these great leaders. There are various other characteristics of Romanticism, but these six the protest against the bondage of rules the return to nature and the human heart, the interest in old sagas and medieval romances as suggestive of a heroic age, the sympathy for the toilers of the world, the emphasis upon individual genius, and the return to Milton and the Elizabethans, instead of to Pope and Dryden, for literary models are the most noticeable and the most interesting, remembering them, we shall better appreciate the work of the following writers who, in varying degree, Illustrate the revival of Romantic poetry in the 18th century. Thomas Gray 1716-1771 The curfew tolls the knell of parting day, the lowing herd winds slowly o'er the lee, the plowman homeward plods his weary way, and leaves the world to darkness and to me. Now fades the glimmering landscape on the sight, and all the air a solemn stillness holds, save where the beetle wheels his droning flight, and drowsy tinklings lull the distant folds. So begins, the best-known poem in the English language, a poem full of the gentle melancholy which marks all early romantic poetry. It should be read entire, as a perfect model of its kind, not even Milton's style Penseroso, which it strongly suggests, excels it in beauty and suggestiveness. Life of Grey, the author of the famous, Elegy, is the most scholarly and well-balanced of all the early romantic poets. In his youth he was a weakling the only one of twelve children who survived infancy, and his unhappy childhood, the tyranny of his father, and the separation from his loved mother, gave to his whole life the stamp of melancholy which is noticeable in all his poems, at the famous Eton School and again at Cambridge, he seems to have followed his own scholarly tastes rather than the curriculum, and was shocked, like Gibbon, at the general idleness and aimlessness of university life. One happy result of his school life was his friendship for Horace Walpole, who took him abroad for a three-years tour of the continent. No better index of the essential difference between the classical and the new romantic school can be imagined than that which is revealed in the letters of Gray and Addison, as they record their impressions of foreign travel. Thus, when Addison crossed the Alps, some twenty-five years before, in good weather, he wrote, A very troublesome journey. You cannot imagine how I am pleased with the sight of a plain. Gray crossed the Alps in the beginning of winter, wrapped in muffs, hoods and masks of beaver, fur boots, and bearskins, but rode ecstatically. Not a precipice, not a torrent, not a cliff but is pregnant with religion and poetry. On his return to England, Gray lived for a short time at Stoke Pogs, where he wrote his Ode on Eton, and probably sketched his Elegy, which, however, was not finished till 1750. Eight years later, 
During the latter years of his shy and scholarly life he was professor of modern history and languages at Cambridge, without any troublesome work of lecturing to students. Here he gave himself up to study and to poetry, varying his work by prowlings among the manuscripts of the new British Museum, and by his Lilliputian travels in England and Scotland. He died in his rooms at Pembroke College in 1771, and was buried in the little churchyard of Stoke Pogs, works of Gray. Gray's Letters, published in 1775, are excellent reading, and his journal is still a model of natural description, but it is to a single small volume of poems that he owes his fame and his place in literature. These poems divide themselves naturally into three periods, in which we may trace the progress of Gray's emancipation from the classic rules which had so long governed English literature. In the first period he wrote several minor poems of which the best are his Hymn to Adversity and the Odes to Spring and On a Distant Prospect of Eton College. These early poems reveal two suggestive things. First, the appearance of that melancholy which characterizes all the poetry of the period, and second, the study of nature, not for its own beauty or truth, but rather as a suitable background for the play of human emotions. The second period shows the same tendencies more strongly developed. The Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard, 1750, the most perfect poem of the age, belongs to this period. To read Milton's Il Penseroso and Grace Elegy is to see the beginning and the perfection of that literature of melancholy which largely occupied English poets for more than a century. Two other well-known poems of this second period are the Pindaric Odes, The Progress of Poesy, and The Bard. The first is strongly suggestive of Dryden's Alexander's Feast but shows Milton's influence in a greater melody and variety of expression. The Bard Island in every way, more romantic and original, an old minstrel, the last of the Welsh singers, halts King Edward and his army in a wild mountain pass, and with fine poetic frenzy prophesies the terror and desolation which must ever follow the tyrant. From its first line, ruin sees thee, ruthless king, to the end. When the old bard plunges from his lofty crag and disappears in the river's flood, the poem thrills with the fire of an ancient and noble race of men. It breaks absolutely with the classical school and proclaims a literary declaration of independence. In the third period Gray turns momentarily from his Welsh material and reveals a new field of romantic interest into Norse poems. The Fatal Sisters and The Descent of Odin, 1761. Gray translated his material from the Latin. And though these two poems lack much of the elemental strength and grandeur of the Norse sagas, they are remarkable for calling attention to the unused wealth of literary material that was hidden in Northern Mythologues. To Gray and to Percy who published his Northern Antiquities in 1770 is due in large measure the profound interest in the old Norse sagas which has continued to our own day. Taken together, Gray's works form a most interesting commentary on the varied life of the 18th century. He was a scholar familiar with all the intellectual interests of his age, and his work has much of the precision and polish of the classical school, but he shares also the reawakened interest in nature, in common man, and in medieval culture, and his work is generally romantic both in style and in spirit, the same conflict between the classic and romantic schools, and the triumph of romanticism, is shown clearly in the most versatile of Gray's contemporaries, Oliver Goldsmith. Oliver Goldsmith 1728-1774 Because the Deserted Village is one of the most familiar poems in our language. Goldsmith is generally given a high place among the poets of the Romantic Dawn. But the village, 
when we read it carefully, turns out to be a rhymed essay in the style of Pope's famous essay on man, it owes its popularity to the sympathetic memories which it awakens, rather than to its poetic excellence. It is as a prose writer that Goldsmith excels. He is an essayist, with Addison's fine polish but with more sympathy for human life, he is a dramatist, one of the very few who have ever written a comedy that can keep its popularity unchanged while a century rolls over its head, but greater, perhaps, than the poet and essayist and dramatist is Goldsmith the novelist, who set himself to the important work of purifying the early novel of its brutal and indecent tendencies, and who has given us, in The Vicar of Wakefield, one of the most enduring characters in English fiction, in his manner, especially in his poetry, Goldsmith was too much influenced by his friend Johnson and the classicists, but in his matter, in his sympathy for nature and human life, he belongs unmistakably to the new romantic school, altogether he is the most versatile, the most charming, the most inconsistent, and the most lovable genius of all the literary men who made famous the age of Johnson, life. Goldsmith's career is that of an irresponsible, and balanced genius, which would make one despair if the man himself did not remain so lovable in all his inconsistencies. He was born in the village of Pallas, Ireland, the son of a poor Irish curate whose noble character is portrayed in Dr. Primrose, of the Vicar of Wakefield, and in the country parson of the deserted village, after an unsatisfactory course in various schools, where he was regarded as hopelessly stupid. Goldsmith entered Trinity College, Dublin, as a sizar, i.e. a student who pays with labor for his tuition. By his escapades he was brought into disfavor with the authorities, but that troubled him little. He was also wretchedly poor, which troubled him less, for when he earned a few shillings by writing ballads for street singers, his money went oftener to idle beggars than to the paying of his honest debts. After three years of university life he ran away, in dime novel fashion and nearly starved to death before he was found and brought back in disgrace. Then he worked a little, and obtained his degree in 1749. Strange that such an idle and irresponsible youth should have been urged by his family to take holy orders, but such was the fact. For two years more Goldsmith labored with theology, only to be rejected when he presented himself as a candidate for the ministry. He tried teaching, and failed. Then his fancy turned to America, and, provided with money and a good horse. He started off for Cork, where he was to embark for the New World. He loafed along the pleasant Irish ways, missed his ship, and presently turned up cheerfully amongst his relatives, minus all his money, and riding a sorry nag called Fiddleback, for which he had traded his own on the way. He borrowed fifty pounds more, and started for London to study law, but speedily lost his money at cards, and again appeared amiable and irresponsible as ever, among his despairing relatives, the next year they sent him to Edinburgh to study medicine, here for a couple of years he became popular as a singer of songs and a teller of tales, to whom medicine was only a troublesome affliction, suddenly the wanderlust seized him and he started abroad, ostensibly to complete his medical education, but in reality to wander like a cheerful beggar over Europe, singing and playing his flute for food and lodging, he may have studied a little at Leiden and at Padua, but that was only incidental. After a year or more of vagabondage he returned to London with an alleged medical degree, said to have been obtained at Louvain or Padua. The next few years are a pitiful struggle to make a living as tutor, apothecary's assistant, comedian, usher in a country school, and finally as a physician in Southwark. 
Gradually he drifted into a literature, and lived from hand to mouth by doing hack work for the London booksellers. Some of his essays and his Citizen of the World 1760-1761 brought him to the attention of Johnson, who looked him up, was attracted first by his poverty and then by his genius, and presently declared him to be one of the first men we now have as an author. Johnson's friendship proved invaluable, and presently Goldsmith found himself a member of the exclusive literary club. He promptly justified Johnson's confidence by publishing The Traveler 1764 which was hailed as one of the finest poems of the century. Money now came to him liberally. With orders from the booksellers, he took new quarters in Fleet Street and furnished them gorgeously, but he had an inordinate vanity for bright-colored clothes, and faster than he earned money he spent it on velvet cloaks and in indiscriminate charity. For a time he resumed his practice as a physician, but his fine clothes did not bring patience, as he expected, and presently he turned to writing again to pay his debts to the booksellers. He produced several superficial and grossly inaccurate schoolbooks, like his animated nature and his histories of England, Greece, and Rome, which brought him bread and more fine clothes, and his vicar of Wakefield, the deserted village, and she stoops to conquer, which brought him a dying fame. After meeting with Johnson, Goldsmith became the object of Boswell's magpie curiosity, and to Boswell's life of Johnson we are indebted for many of the details of Goldsmith's life, his homeliness, his awkward ways, his drolleries and absurdities, which made him alternately the butt and the wit of the famous literary club. Boswell disliked Goldsmith, and so draws an unflattering portrait, but even this does not disguise the contagious good humor which made men love him, when in his 47th year, he fell sick of a fever and with childish confidence turned to a quack medicine to cure himself. He died in 1774, and Johnson placed a tablet, with a sonorous Latin epitaph, in Westminster Abbey. Though Goldsmith was buried elsewhere, let not his frailties be remembered, he was a very great man, said Johnson, and the literary world which, like that old dictator, is kind enough at heart, though often rough in its methods is glad to accept and record the verdict. Works of Goldsmith of Goldsmith's early essays and his later school histories little need be said, they have settled into their own place, far out of sight of the ordinary reader, perhaps the most interesting of these is a series of letters for the public ledger afterwards published as the citizen of the world, written from the viewpoint of an alleged Chinese traveler, and giving the latter's comments on English civilization, the following five works are those upon which Goldsmith's fame chiefly rests, the Traveler 1764 made Goldsmith's reputation among his contemporaries, but is now seldom read, except by students who would understand how Goldsmith was, at one time, dominated by Johnson and his pseudo-classic ideals. It is a long poem, in rhyme couplets, giving a survey and criticism of the social life of various countries in Europe, and reflects many of Goldsmith's own wanderings and impressions. The Deserted Village 1770 though written in the same mechanical style, is so permeated with honest human sympathy, and voices so perfectly the revolt of the individual man against institutions, that a multitude of common people heard it gladly, without consulting the critics as to whether they should call it good poetry, notwithstanding its faults, to which Matthew Arnold has called sufficient attention, it has become one of our best-known poems. Though we cannot help wishing that the monotony of its couplets had been broken by some of the Irish folk songs and ballads that charmed street audiences in Dublin, and that brought Goldsmith a welcome from the French peasants wherever he stopped to sing. 
in the village parson and the schoolmaster. Goldsmith has increased Chaucer's list by two lovable characters that will endure as long as the English language. The criticism that the picture of Prosperous, Sweet Auburn, never applied to any village in Ireland is just, no doubt. But it is outside the question. Goldsmith was a hopeless dreamer, bound to see everything, as he saw his debts and his gay clothes, in a purely idealistic way. The good-natured man and she stoops to conquer our Goldsmith's two comedies, the former, a comedy of character, though it has some laughable scenes and one laughable character, Croker, met with failure on the stage, and has never been revived with any success. The latter, a comedy of intrigue, is one of the few plays that has never lost its popularity, its lively, bustling scenes, and its pleasantly absurd characters. Marlowe, The Hard Castles, and Tony Lumpkin, still hold the attention of modern theatre-goers, and nearly every amateur dramatic club sooner or later places she stoops to conquer on its list of attractions. The Vicar of Wakefield is Goldsmith's only novel, and the first in any language that gives to home life an enduring romantic interest. However much we admire the beginnings of the English novel, to which we shall presently refer, we are nevertheless shocked by its frequent brutalities and indecencies. Goldsmith like Steele, had the Irish reverence for pure womanhood, and this reverence made him shun as a pest vulgarity and coarseness in which contemporary novelists, like Smollett and Stern, seem to delight. So he did for the novel what Addison and Steele had done for the satire and the essay, he refined and elevated it making it worthy of the old Anglo-Saxon ideals which are our best literary heritage. Briefly, The Vicar of Wakefield is the story of a simple English clergyman, Dr. Primrose, and his family, who pass from happiness through great tribulation. Misfortunes, which are said never to come singly, appear in this case in flocks, but through poverty, sorrow, imprisonment, and the unspeakable loss of his daughters. The Vicar's faith in God and man emerges triumphant. To the very end he is like one of the old martyrs, who sings hallelujah while the lions roar about him and his children in the arena. Goldsmith's optimism, it must be confessed, is here stretched to the breaking point. The reader is sometimes offered fine Johnsonian phrases where he would naturally expect homely and vigorous language, and he is continually haunted by the suspicion that, even in this best of all possible worlds, the vicar's clouds of affliction were somewhat too easily converted into showers of blessing, yet he is forced to read on, and at the end he confesses gladly that Goldsmith has succeeded in making a most interesting story out of material that, in other hands, would have developed either a burlesque or a brutal tragedy, laying aside all romantic passion, intrigue, and adventure, upon which other novelists depended, Goldsmith, in this simple story of common life has accomplished three noteworthy results, he has made human fatherhood almost a divine thing, he has glorified the moral sentiments which cluster about the family life as the center of civilization, and he has given us, in Dr. Primrose, a striking and enduring figure, which seems more like a personal acquaintance than a character in a book. William Cooper 1731-1800 In Cooper we have another interesting poet, who, like Gray and Goldsmith, shows the struggle between romantic and classic ideals. In his first volume of poems, Cooper is more hampered by literary fashions than was Goldsmith in his Traveler and his Deserted Village. In his second part, 